Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 63, verse 7, through chapter 64, verse 12, found on page 608 of the provided Bibles. Starting at verse 7, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord the deeds for which he is to be praised. According to all the, th the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he has done for Israel. According to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of the presence of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths like a horse in open country. They did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you got at your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from the heaven and see from your lofty throne holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, but you are our father through Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not rolled over them, and they have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on the behalf of those who wait on him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us has become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins are swept away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have given us over to, over from, 
to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all the treasures lie in ruins. After this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? This is the word of the Lord. It's not you, it's me. Have you ever heard that phrase? Hopefully you've not heard it in real life, and if you have, well, I'm sorry for stirring up that uh, probably uh, unpleasant memory. If you've heard that phrase, it's not you, it's me, you probably heard it in a movie, a romantic comedy, uh, probably. It's not you, it's me. When you hear that phrase, it's when in that romantic comedy, the big unfortunate misunderstanding got cleared up and the girl in the movie realized that the guy she thought, because of that unfortunate misunderstanding she thought was evil, she now realized after the clearing up of that misunderstanding is really the guy she ought to be with. But in the meantime, she had started dating the not right guy and uh, now in the midst of things, she now sees how not good that guy is, so she's got to break it off with that guy before she is with the right guy. They're all the same. Every one of them are all the same. And if she wants to let him down gently before she breaks it off with the not right guy to be with the right guy, she says, it's not you, it's me. And that lets him down gently because that provides the assurance, if she's being honest, which probably she's not, uh, that the reason for the problem and the breakdown of the relationship is located here in me, not there in you. So don't worry about it. Don't feel bad about it. It's me. So if you've heard that phrase, it's not you, it's, it's me, that's not, you know, that's not a phrase you want to hear. But it's much better than hearing the opposite phrase, its opposite counterpart, it's not me, it's you. If you hear that, you're really in trouble. And that's actually what we hear in Isaiah chapter 65. We're looking at chapter 63 all the way through uh, half of 65, uh, 65 or 16. We didn't read the whole thing because it's pretty lengthy. But uh, we just read... Um, 63 and part of and 60 part of 63 and 64 in which God's people cry out to God and God's response then essentially in chapter 65 God says to his people in response to what they're crying out about he says it's not me it's you The problem of the breakdown of the relationship isn't located in me or any deficiency in me it's located in you and your deficiencies. Chapter 65 is a response to a song of lament that the people of God sing, and in the lament they recognize that there's a problem, there's a breakdown somewhere in their relationship between them and God. And it's a lament about feeling as a result of that breakdown distant from God, feeling 
that God is distant from them, feeling that God's withdrawn from them, feeling that the kindness of God that used to be there for the people of God isn't there, feeling that, uh, that God has held himself back from them, feeling that God isn't speaking to them or hearing them or looking upon them with mercy and love. And in light of those feelings, they're calling upon God to look at them again and see them and come down to them to do great things for them again, to return to them, to help them. As if the reason for the breakdown in the relationship is because God isn't doing those things already. But he is. You see, they think about the past history of God and his people and in 63 verse 7 where we started our reading, they think about his kindness his praiseworthiness, all the good things he has done for his people out of compassion and out of kindness to them. And in 63 verse 8, they remember how he chose them to be his people for no reason in them, only because of his grace and his kindness. And in verse 9, when they were distressed, he became distressed too and entered into their experience to be present among them to give them comfort in their distress. How in love and mercy he redeemed them, how he lifted it up, and it says he carried them, and that's an Exodus image, an image of the, the deliverance out of Egypt. And it's also one that we've seen as common in Isaiah to show, to picture God's redemption of his people. In verse 11, it talks about how he brought them out of Egypt and miraculously led them through the Red Sea, that he was present among them and led them and guided them and gave them rest. And they remember those things and in 63 verse 15, they ask God to look down and remember and stop withholding his tenderness and compassion. They ask where his zeal and might is, why his people have been defeated, why God's holy place is ruined, why he hasn't ruled over them, why aren't they aren't called by his name anymore. And their main prayer then in this lament, they've recalled the past and remembered God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness in the past and they're feeling like that's not there and then their main prayer then is for God to come down to them. And we see this, this uh, request three times in chapter 64 verse one and verse two and verse three. We see it three times there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear open heaven and come down. And then verse two, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. In verse three, when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Just like God came down to his people in the past, they're pleading with him to come down again. They ask God not to be angry beyond measure. They ask God to look upon them and the prayer ends in 6412 when they ask God to not hold himself back from them not to keep silent and not be too hard on them. And then after that, we get to God's answer of this request for him to come down on them, to remember them, to not keep silent from them. And God's answer in chapter 65, essentially God says, it's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's you. The problem isn't in God being distant or unfaithful or silent. The problem isn't God's unwillingness. The problem isn't in God at all. The problem is in them. 
65.1, God says in his response, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here I am. Here am I. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. You see what this response is communicating to God's people. God hasn't left. He's saying, here am I. Here am I. I'm right here. God hasn't withdrawn from them. He's saying, I've held my hands open wide, my arms open wide to you, pleading, in fact, with you to come into my embrace and my love and my kindness and my grace. The problem isn't in me. God says it's in you. If you feel that God is silent, as God's people did here, maybe the problem isn't that God is silent, but that we aren't listening. If we feel that God is distant, as God's people did here, maybe the problem isn't that God is distant, but that you are running in the other direction. If you feel that God is hiding from you, maybe the problem isn't that he is hiding, but we are. God here is eager. God here is pleading. God here makes the first move. He isn't waiting for us to take the initiative with him. He's taking the initiative with us. He's lowering himself to get our attention when we should have already raised our attention to him but didn't. He comes down and lowers himself to get our attention. He takes the initiative with us and keeps pursuing us even though we from the get-go, have turned away and run in the other direction. The people, the problem wasn't God's willingness, but the problem was the people's attitude towards him. Now, there are times in life that God feels distant, but isn't. Certainly, probably we've all experienced times like that, when God feels distant, but isn't. Oftentimes in our suffering, we feel like God is distant. We feel like God isn't speaking to us, hearing us, present with us, that he's withdrawn from us, but he isn't. And by faith, we need to know that God is present with us in an intensely personal and an empathetic way as the people reflect on in verse nine of chapter 63, in all their distress, the people of God, in all their distress, he too was distressed. That in our distress, God comes especially near to us and makes our distress his own and empathizes with us and helps us and comforts us. Sometimes in our suffering, it feels like God is distant. But by faith, we need to believe that he is with us and near to us. But in our sin, we distance ourselves from God. And that is what's happened here with God's people. In their sin, they had distanced themselves from him. It's not him, it's us. Certainly when we are dead in our sins before we come to saving faith through Jesus, we have no fellowship with God. He is present, but not with his kindness or favor or blessing, but only present with his judgment. But even af and after we come to faith, God is present with us in a new way, a totally radically different 
way. He's present with us in his blessing and in his favor and in his kindness and in his love. But even after we come to faith, if we are living in unrepentant sin, our sense of fellowship with God may be clouded. Our sense of enjoyment of that fellowship with God will be diminished. And he, in his discipline of us, for our good in order to grab our hearts and bring us back to him, may withdraw the light of his presence from a time. Not because he's gone, not because he's saying, all right, that's it, see you later, but because he wants to recapture our hearts and give us a glimpse of the scary road we are beginning to walk down in sin. It's not because God is being stingy or withholding, it's because he's holding his hands out to us. And the question is, is will we walk away or will we turn towards him? See, the real problem for the people of God in Isaiah's day, the real problem wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It was themselves. It was the enemy within themselves. It was the enemy within themselves of their wandering, hardened hearts. Incurable, they talk about in verse 17, unless God would cure them. And he would if they would turn to him. The problem was their wandering hearts and even God sent his Holy Spirit in verse 10, they remember. But the people grieved his Holy Spirit. And so God sends his spirit that can turn their hearts but the people reject the very thing that God has given to cure them by persisting in their sin and by walking in the opposite direction which that spirit leads us because it is his Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is holy and he leads us in the direction of holiness. But these people grieved that spirit by turning in the other direction and by walking in unholiness. See, these people call themselves God's servants, but they don't live like his servants. And that's what God promises to do, but we have to turn to him in repentance. He promises to make us Righteous, to make our lives reflect the righteous life of God if we turn to him. And this lament then chronicles how God gave his people every reason, every advantage, every motivation to live as his faithful servants because he had proved to them over and over and over that he is a faithful God. And in light of the kindness that he showed them, they should have responded to that kindness by being his people and living in faithfulness to him. And his over and over again proven faithfulness and kindness to them makes their unfaithfulness all the more ugly. The backdrop and reality of his redemption of them makes their rebellion all the more unthinkable. In verse 8, God says to himself, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. But then look at the contrast in verse 10. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy. There's two huge contrasts here. First, the contrast between all that God did and how God's people they who were recipients of all that God did, 
how they responded to it. All that he did in goodness and undeserved kindness and love and the contrast between what he did and the contrast between what he did and their response, yet they rebelled. It's unthinkable. It doesn't fit with everything we had read about all God's kindness. The only reasonable response, the only right response, the only fitting response we should read. God was so kind to them and so they responded by living as his faithful children. But that's not what we read. God was so kind to them, giving them every reason to love him back, yet they rebelled. The backdrop of God's kindness makes their rebellion all the more ugly and unthinkable. And you see, the idea of rebelling against God is bad enough on its own, but with that backdrop, it's the ugliest of stains and the most heinous of sins. It's relational violation and betrayal of the greatest kind because it's a violation and betrayal of the greatest person. Second, the contrast we see in those verses is between what God was to them and his, in his grace, what God became to them in his grace, and what God became to them in their rebellion. Verse 8, God became their savior. He chose them. He made them his children. He said, surely they are my people, and they will be children who are true to me. So he became their savior. He redeemed them, brought them out of their slavery in Egypt, and brought them to himself to bring them into his family, making his, their, them his children. God became their savior. But then after they rebelled, look at the contrast in verse 10. They rebelled and so God turned and became their enemy and he himself fought against them. What a contrast, right? From God going from being their savior to God being their enemy and fighting against them. Why did God change so drastically, right? Well, the reason isn't that God changed at all. God was the same God both in, in both situations. God was utterly dependable and utterly consistent. He didn't change at all. They changed. They rebelled against his kindness, and so they made themselves to be his enemies. See, God wants children who will be true to him. That's what he saves us for. But if we won't be true to him, we shouldn't think that he's our savior. We should only ex ex expect him to be our enemy. And this warning then is all the more serious because this um, lament is um, <clears throat> bordered by before it and after it, which we didn't read. Uh, both sides of this prayer and response have God's warning on either end of it. In chapter 63, verses one through six, and at the end of the next chapter, chapter 65, verse eight through 16. You see, on both sides of this prayer and response is a warning to the people of God who might assume that they're part of God's people just because they have some external association to the people of God, even though their lives don't represent God in any way because they don't have true faith in him. You see, on both sides of this prayer and response, this warning, this call to self-examination, this call to look in the mirror and ask yourself honestly, is Jesus my savior to whom I have responded to his kindness with gratitude and love? Or is Jesus my enemy 
because I spurned his kindness and rebelled against him and turned away. There's no more important question to ask yourself. We ask ourselves a lot of things in life, right? We consider a lot of things about ourselves. We're careful to make sure we're not utterly mistaken about ourselves, about lots of things in life, right? Those things don't matter compared to this. They don't matter compared to this. This question, is Jesus your savior, whom you have seen and received and responded to rightly his kindness and redemption, or is he your enemy because you have spurned that and turned away? Because Jesus is an enemy that you really don't want to have as your enemy. And that's where in Isaiah we start to, to get into the, the final, the ending theme that the book of Isaiah brings us to. It's sort of like the grand conclusion, which we'll look at next week in our last sermon in the series of Isaiah. It's this question of where you stand with God because that is a question of ultimate importance, because that is a question that has eternal consequences. If there was ever an enemy in all this world, and there have been plenty of enemies in all this world, there's one enemy that you don't want to have. It's a holy God. And 63, 1 through 6, paints this picture let me read it. We didn't read it earlier. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is a really a fearsome, kind of a gruesome picture. The, the, the movie version of Isaiah would have to edit this out to make it uh, you know, acceptable for a viewing audience. It's a gruesome picture of God conquering his enemies. But there's a few things we need to notice about this. First, he does it fully. He does it fully. He comes from Edom, it says, a nation that was a long-standing enemy of the people of God and so had become representative of all the enemies of God. And it tells us that he has totally conquered them, totally defeated them. And the first question that this uh, warrior receives here is who is this and he answers with divine language he says it is I the way that God characteristically refers to himself and identifies himself in Isaiah and more so the one who proclaims victory and the one who he says I am 
mighty to save, that can only be God himself because as verse five tells us, he does it fully. Second, he does it single-handedly. He accomplishes his victory single-handedly. We don't help him in it. No one helps him in it because he doesn't need any help in it. And the second question that he receives as he shows up on the scene, based on his appearance, that he's asked, oh, have you been making wine? The reason he's asked that is because his clothes are stained red. That's how they would make wine in, in those days. They would stamp on the newly harvested grapes, and it was a messy job. It would stain you. But he makes plain that that's not Grape juice, because that's not grapes he's been trampling on. He's been trampling on his enemies. And, it's, and, and uh, he has conquered them. He does it fully, he does it single-handedly, and finally, we're told that he does it in his anger. We see that in verse three. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. But here's the thing that distinguishes Jesus from any other enemy or any other evil, uh, any, any evil enemy out there is that his anger is holy and good and right. That in his anger, he's not evil. That in him uh, conquering his enemies, he's not evil. But they are evil. And if Jesus is angry at you, it's because you deserve that anger. And if Jesus has wrath upon you, it's because you fully deserve that wrath because his anger is holy and good. Our anger isn't holy. It's self-serving and sin-filled. God's anger is holy. It's a reflection for his love of, of his love for all that is good. And it's a reflection of his love for his own glory. And look at Verse four, it pairs vengeance and redemption together. And look at verse five, it pairs salvation and wrath together because those are two sides of the same coin. He delivers us from our enemies by conquering our enemies. He saves us from our enemies by having wrath upon our enemies. And this gives us hope and it's because of this that the Apostle Paul can tell us to leave vengeance to God because God will have it. This is describing the final calling to account of those who have oppressed others, those who have lived evil in this world and seem to get away with it, but won't. This assures us that nothing we suffer goes unnoticed and every wrong done to us will be repaid in full and so we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands because God does it right. God does it better than us. And so we can love our enemies. It hears our cry for justice but takes the achieving of that justice out of our hands and puts it in God's hands and enables us to rest in the reality that God will make all things right. The book of Revelation, which is written to a hard-pressed, suffering, persecuted church and encouraging them to not give up in their faith by reminding them that the final victory belongs to God and vindication for his hard-pressed, persecuted people is coming, 
draws on this image. Revelation 19 draws heavily on this image in which Jesus comes to defend his persecuted people by conquering their enemies and winning the final victory for them. And so the point is, hold on, trust Jesus, persevere no matter what comes your way in this life because he will not forsake you, but he'll vindicate you and rescue you for your enemies. But you see, the problem is, what if the enemy is not just out there, but as we talked about earlier, what if the enemy is in here? What if there's an enemy within us? And that's where redemption and wrath come together because on the cross, Jesus trampled the enemy within us in order to redeem us by becoming a sacrifice for us and shedding his blood for our salvation. And so we either experience his vengeance and shed our blood or we receive his blood shed for us and receive his redemption. If you think you can stand under the judgment of a holy God, you're wrong. You can stand under the judgment of God about as much as a grape can stand up under a warrior's trampling boot. That's what this image is trying to convey. There's nothing to gain. There's no winning in opposing Jesus and living a life of rebellion against him. All there is to do is lay down our arms of rebellion and bow before him as our king who lifts us up in his love. Why would we not take that deal? Why would we not receive that grace? We can gain the whole world, but it will be nothing apart from Jesus. It will only be loss, and it will ultimately be lost. And in the last part of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8 through 16, God shows us the consequences of this by showing us who's on his side and what their destiny is, who his servants are, and who isn't on his side, who aren't his servants, and what their destiny is. Chapter 65, verse 13, says this, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out, from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the only true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes." You see, what God is doing here is distinguishing between those who are his true servants and those who aren't. Those who are his true servants, his true people, and those who are imposters, fakers, hypocrites. And earlier in verse eight of chapter 65, God, uh, he, he says, when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there's still blessing in it, so I will do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. In other words, God is sort of examining this cluster of grapes and of course and he, they know, he sees that there's some bad grapes in it but what he's saying is he's not gonna just throw away or destroy, uh, get rid of the whole cluster 
treating them all the same, but he's going to distinguish between those grapes that are good and those grapes that are rotten or sour or bad. God will distinguish between them. Right now, God's people may be a bit of a mixture. There may be God's true servants and hypocrites and fakers mixed in together in one clump. But we're only fooling ourselves if God thinks that, if, if we think that God is fooled by that, if we think that God can't sort that out, if we think that God can't see the true condition of our hearts, God will sort it out. And it all depends on whether God's people respond to him in repentance or not. And God's true servants aren't just those who have descended from Abraham as they thought they were in, uh, they mentioned earlier in chapter 63. But in chapter 65, verse 10, God's true servants are those who have sought him. Whereas we see in chapter 65, verse 11, those who aren't God's true servants, those who are hypocrites, are those who forsake him and forget him, those whom he called but they didn't answer, and those to whom he spoke but they didn't listen, those who chose what displeased him and turned away from him. And at the end of this chapter, which I read earlier, it describes the fates of each. And as I said, this leads the way into the final themes of Isaiah, the eternal consequences of how you respond to God. And in verses 13 through 16, he's making a contrast between my servants and you. And the you he's addressing is those people among the people of God that are not truly his people. Those who have rejected and rebelled against him still. And he describes the fate of his true servants. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. And he goes on. And you see what he's saying is that heaven, the eternal destiny of God's true servants is like feasting, drinking, rejoicing, singing, and blessing. But hell, the eternal fate of those who rebel and continue in unrepentance is like starving, thirst, shame, anguish, brokenness, and curse. All things that he lists as what awaits those who don't turn to him in repentance. Which do you want for eternity, God is asking. Feasting, drinking, rejoicing, singing, blessing. All the things in that, that make a heart overflow with joy. All the things that we seek for in this life but only find in God. He's offering those things. What do you want, that Feasting, drinking, rejoicing, singing, blessing, or starving, thirst, shame, anguish, brokenness, curse for all eternity. There's no greater reality in all the universe than in receiving the fullness of God's blessing for all eternity. And there's no more terrible reality in all the universe than in receiving the fullness of God's curse for all eternity. And in Jesus we can have that blessing. Because you see, Jesus is the answer to the prayer that I mentioned, the main part of the prayer in chapter 64 for God to come down. Because in Jesus, God did come down. In Jesus, 
God crossed over that barrier that had been between us and he came to us and he lived among us. And um, in Mark chapter one, where Jesus is being baptized by John as he comes out of the water, we read the description that heaven is torn open and the Holy Spirit of God comes down upon him. God set his spirit upon his son so that we would see him and never take the gaze of our hearts and affections away. And he put his spirit in our hearts so that our hearts could be made new. And this prayer of Isaiah 64.1, the prayer that God would rend the heavens and come down, we see that answered in the coming of Jesus and in the sending of the Holy Spirit where God tore heaven open and came down into our lives, into our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that each of our hearts would consider you, would consider your grace, would consider your love, would consider your kindness, and would consider where we stand in relation to you, whether you are our savior, or whether we have made ourselves your enemy. And Father, I pray that you would help us to turn to you in humble repentance. Pour your spirit into our hearts so that we can be your true servants. And give us hope of the reality of heaven when all things are made right, when the victory is ours through Jesus, when we have eternal rest from our hardships and sorrows in this life. And help us to persevere until that day. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.